Hey everybody, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I hope it's really helping you grow in the Lord. But I just wanted to take a second just to talk about this great tool that I've been using to bring the Word of God to people. Anchor is a tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast to listening platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and a lot more. So it's really been helping me reach people that I can't go to their house and actually teach them a Bible study. So it's everything you need in the podcast in one place. The best of all, Anchor, and it's totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Word Bible Study with Pastor Dan. Yeah, and I'm excited for everyone who decided to have a Bible study with me today. Well, today we're going to be talking about the God of Gods. We serve the greatest God that's ever existed. And there have been many false gods and many people that claim to be God. But we serve the real God, Yahweh, the one God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who wrapped himself in flesh and came to earth as a man named Jesus Christ and died on the cross for all of our sins so that we could stand justified before this great and powerful God. So today we're going to talk all about this God of gods and this King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And we're going to go through a bunch of scriptures that talk about him. And let's start with Psalms chapter 89, starting in verse 1. I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn an oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. So now we know David's kingdom ended. But this was referring to Jesus, which was going to come from the lineage of David. And he would sit on a throne that would last forever. So let's continue here reading about it. They will sit on your throne from now until eternity. All heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all the heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? The highest angelic power stands in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You are eternally faithful. You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. You crushed the great sea monster. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. And everything in the world is yours. You created it all. So I want to pause and highlight that for a second. The earth is God's. And the heavens are God's. And everything in them. Because he created them. So I know we hear a lot in church today about, you know, this world belongs to Satan and he has the power to give people. Well, the Bible says right here that the earth belongs to God. He gave rule of it to man and some men do allow Satan to lead their lives. But that does not make this world belong to Satan. This world belongs to God because he created it. Satan couldn't create anything. 
No angel could ever create anything. All things were created through Christ. So all things belong to Christ. You created the north and the south, Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. Praise your name. Powerful is your arm, strong is your hand. Your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, and they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord, and rejoice all day long in your wonderful reputation. They exalt in your righteousness. You are their glorious strength. It pleases you to make us strong. Yes, our protection comes from the Lord, and He, the Holy One of Israel, has given us our King. So yeah, this is referring to the King that would come from the line of David, which was the man Jesus Christ, Yahweh, wrapped in flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of gods, the one who would sit on this throne forever. Now let's look in the New Testament. We're going to see how this is confirmed in the book of Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 35. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So that's clearly where they're referring to Jesus as the descendant of David that would sit on his throne and it would never end. And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. So he is the Son of God, the begotten Son, the only begotten Son of God. That means he is a representation of God in flesh on earth. And he is the descendant of David that will reign forever on earth. That is powerful. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 6 and 7. And these scriptures are a foretelling of Christ's coming. So Isaiah was writing about Christ when he was writing this scripture here. And you're going to clearly see that. It says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So here they're claiming that Jesus is God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the part we want to we focus on. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of the heaven's armies will make this happen. So that's powerful. I want to read it in the King James as well. It says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So the government will be forever on his shoulders. 
So that's why it doesn't really matter who's the president or who's in office. Or, I mean, yes, we vote. Yes, we do the right thing. We're supposed to influence our community and have a say in our world around us. But in the end, we know that Jesus is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And the government is forever on his shoulders. So they can only do what God's going to allow to have happen on earth. And sometimes it may surprise us what God allows. But we have an end game here that God has never lost sight of. He knows where we're going. And he sees the victory ahead. So what may take place along the way is all working towards the plan that God set in motion a long time ago. Because before the creation of the earth, he knew he was going to send Jesus. And Jesus was going to redeem us for our sins. And that he was going to bring this world back to the place of order that he created it in to begin with. Before the devil came down and messed everything up. But never... Did he ever stop controlling the world? This world was created by him, and it can't belong to anyone else. Now, there have been times that because of disobedience, God has abandoned his children to foreign gods and allowed them to be under their rule. But that never gave control of the earth over to anyone else. And we're going to see that as we go along here. Now, in the Bible, there are several standoffs with God big G and little G gods in the Bible. There are several times where he has a standoff with these gods. And one of them that we're going to look at right now is between the chapters of Exodus 3 through Exodus 11. And this is when God is going to send Moses to call his people out of Israel. So the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have gone into Egypt because of a famine and they've survived there for years and now it's gotten to the point where the king no longer remembers them and they're punishing them with slavery and making them serve their gods and their customs so Moses has an encounter with God at the burning bush and God's gonna send him back to Pharaoh and confront the gods of Egypt and that's what this whole story is between these chapters and for the sake of the Bible study I'm not going to read it word for word, but we are going to skim through it and look at some sections. So at the start of chapter 3, we have the burning bush experience. Moses sees this bush that's burning, which is a representation of God's grace, under judgment but not being consumed. And he goes over to this bush and God starts to speak to him out of the bush. And he tells him that he's going to send him back to his people in Egypt and he's going to bring them out of slavery. And of course... As you, if you read the story for yourself, you'll see that Moses protests to this, says he can't talk. But we're going to read in chapter 3, verse 14. And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. The I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. So here we know that the God that's backing Moses' play here is Yahweh, the I Am, which of course Jesus references that he is. He says, before Abraham was, I Am. He references that later in the Bible. So Jesus and Yahweh are the same, and if you continue to read the Bible, you'll come to that conclusion. Or you can go back and listen to my Bible study on the oneness of God, because I think that makes it pretty clear. But to get back to this Bible study... So God's sending Moses 
to go deal with the Egyptians. And we're going to start reading again in chapter 4 here. And Moses protests again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord's never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, What is in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord said to him. So Moses threw it down the staff, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back, and the Lord told him, Reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into the shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out again, his hand was as white as snow, with a severe skin disease. Now put your hand back into your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back in, and when he took it out again, it was healthy as the rest of his body. Then the Lord said to Moses, If they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second sign. And if they don't believe you or listen to you even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground. And when you do, the water of the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. So here we see God is performing some miraculous signs. And he's telling Moses, this is how they're going to know that the God of your ancestors has sent you. So we're going to flip forward a little bit, and Moses does end up going back to Egypt with Aaron by his side to help him. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. The people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they had heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Continuing in chapter 5, After this presentation to the Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh, and they told him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they can hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? reported Pharaoh. And who is this Lord, and why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The Lord... The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with the sword. But of course, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and not only does he not let the people go, but he makes it harder on them. And he continues to battle with Aaron and Moses about not letting his people go. So God says, all right, now I'm going to show him the full power of my hand. So chapter 7, they go back to him, and Aaron and Moses have their staff this time. Pay close attention to this, and I will make you seem like God to Pharaoh. That's what he tells them here. So they go back before Pharaoh, and Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old when this happened, and Aaron was 83 when they made their demands before Pharaoh. This is chapter 7, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will demand, show me a miracle. When he does, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what the Lord commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and the officials, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called his own men, the sorcerers, and these Egyptian magicians, 
They did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staffs and they also became serpents. But then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard and he still refused to listen, just as the Lord had predicted. So here we go. God sends his men in to do a miraculous sign. And the gods of Egypt perform the same sign. But God's snake swallowed both of the world's snakes to show that God's power is greater than the gods of this earth's power. Now, these were false gods, and we know that. But to Egypt, they were real. They worshipped them. They had power. They displayed it. And they convinced the people of Egypt that they were real gods. Now, God's showing up to convince them that they're not. He is the God of this world, and there's no one that stands beside him. And now if you continue in the chapter, the next thing, God tells Aaron and Moses to reach their staff over the water and to turn all the water in the land into blood. So they do that, but again, the Egyptians' magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. But Pharaoh, even though he could produce the blood with his magic, they couldn't make it go away. They couldn't undo what God had done. So they had to go back to Moses and Aaron and ask them to make this go away. So, of course, Aaron and Moses do, but their heart is still hardened. So in chapter 8, Aaron and Moses curse the land with frogs. And frogs are all over the whole land. And once again, their magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. But once again, they couldn't make them go away. So they went back to Moses again and said, please make the frogs go away. And he makes the frogs go away but again he refuses to listen and his heart's hardened and he doesn't let the people go so God decides to curse him again and he threw some dust in the air and all of the dust turned into swarms of gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt now this time the magicians tried to do the same thing but they failed and the gods of Egypt were no longer strong enough to perform the miraculous acts that the God of the Israelites were doing. So this continues though. Pharaoh's heart is still hard. So there's a plague of flies. They can't do that one either. They got to beg for God to take it away. Then there's the plague of the livestock. Then there's the plague of hail. Then there's the plague of locusts. Like this is continuing plague after plague after plague. And now they're not even able to come close to performing these mighty acts of an all-powerful God. Then there's a plague of darkness. And then finally, God demands the firstborn son of every Israelite. And I'm kind of speeding through this for the sake of the Bible study, and it really is a beautiful story of God's power. And you can read it, as I said, through Exodus 3 through 12. It tells the whole story. But of course, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so he does not let the children go. So they perform a Passover, which saves God's children from the wrath of God, while his death angel goes through the camp and destroys the firstborn child of everyone in the camp of the Egyptians. So this is just one example of a battle between the God of gods and some of the false gods that are pretending to be gods, that are pretending to run this earth. And we're going to look at another one here in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18 the battle at mount carmel now we're going to read from verses 20 through verse 40 so ahab summoned all the people of israel and the prophets 
to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So this is a call out between Jesus, Yahweh, the God of gods, and Baal, which is still prevalently worshipped today on earth. Baal worship has still been going on since then till now. But we're going to see how powerful this false god Baal really is. I think it's coming a time soon where his followers are going to be silented again by the power of God. So let's pick this up here in verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on a wooden altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. I love how every time it's going through this here, we got God with a big G talking about Yahweh, and this little bitty G talking about this powerless God, Baal. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming, or he is relieving himself, or maybe he is away on a trip, or is asleep, or needs to be awakened. But they shouted louder, and following their normal customs, they cut themselves with knives and swords until their blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, and no response, like as if their God was dead. <laughs> but how many know we serve a risen God, a God who is alive forever? That's amazing. Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. They all crowded around him as he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took twelve stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, Do the same thing again. And when they had finished, he said, Now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been camping and you try to start a fire with wet wood, it never really works out too good. So Elijah's doing this here to prove to them that not only is he a big God, but he is the biggest God. <laughs> he is so powerful. 
At the usual time of the offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull and the wood, the stones and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell down on the ground and cried out, O Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kershon Valley and killed them there. Hallelujah. I guess it doesn't pay off to serve false gods. In the end, we win, and we're the victorious ones, and they end up dead serving a false god. So this is a call today to everybody. Let's choose the right God to serve because one of them is all powerful and every other God on this earth is already dead. Now there's one more standoff that I want to pay attention to that happens in the Bible and this is a big one. This happens in Matthew chapter 4 and it's the standoff between Jesus and Satan himself. So we know people worship Baal, but there's also people on this earth that still worship Satan. And there's people that believe that Satan has more power than God. But we're going to take a look at this chapter here and see exactly who has all the power. So Matthew chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus replied, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So Satan tested him with food because he knew he was hungry. He tested him with seeing the miraculous happen on earth. But lastly, and most importantly, he tested him by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So Satan shows him all the kingdoms and he says, I can give all this to you if you bow down and worship. Now, people argue over whether or not Satan was lying. He had the power to do all that or not. And all of that's irrelevant because Jesus didn't even think about it for a second. He said, get out of here, Satan, because you can't offer him something he already has. 
He's always been the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He knew he was David's ancestor sitting on the throne forever. He wasn't worried about Satan's little temptation because it didn't matter because he already knew he was the God of gods. He was the God over Baal. He's the God over Satan. He's the God over whatever you think is running this world today because he's still sitting on the throne forever. Now we're going to flip forward a little bit in Matthew to chapter 16. And we're going to start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say he is John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, or the Christ in the King James Version, which means the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Or as it says in the King James, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So it was very important that they understood who he was. And when he makes that statement, you are the anointed one, you are the son of the most high God. He's saying that I recognize that you are Yahweh wrapped in flesh. You are the God of gods here on this earth. And he tells them, you didn't get that on your own. That came from God. No human being could understand that. And then he says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. So here we have the God of gods telling Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And this church will have the keys to the kingdom. That whatever this the church permits on earth will be permitted. And whatever it binds on earth will be bound in heaven. So that gives a big responsibility to this church. Because if the God of gods and the king of kings gives you the keys to the kingdom, and he says, I allow the church, that whatever the church allows to happen on earth, I'm going to allow to happen. And whatever the church forbids on earth, I will forbid from happening. So who rules the world? God still sits on the throne of David. He's still the king of kings. He is God of this world. And we, the church, have the responsibility of allowing and forbidding what happens on this earth. That puts a big responsibility on us believers. We are the ones that allow what, uh, what happens on earth. And we're the ones that forbid what happens on earth. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're actually here to do God's work because he is the king of this world. So we better make sure that we're doing a good job in his kingdom. And to further this point, let's take a look at Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them out ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. 
These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, May God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, this blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is sent before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near to you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And now this, the kingdom of God, is near. I assure you, even wicked Sodom would be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. What sorrow awaits you, Corza and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. Then he said to the disciples, Anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me, but anyone who rejects you is rejecting me, and anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. Then the seventy-two disciples returned. They joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So here he tells them, Yeah, I know the demons listen to you. When you're casting out spirits, they have to obey you because I saw their boss fall like lightning from heaven. So if Satan had to obey me and I send you out under my authority, then his spirits and his imps have to obey you. So that's powerful. That's why we work under the authority of Jesus' name. And now, now that he's talking about seeing his boss fall from lightning, let's take a look at that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. So Isaiah wrote this book as a taunt over the king of Babylon. And this is a prophetic word. So he shows an example of the battle between Israel and Babylon as being a battle between God and the devil. And he's going to show this throughout this book, how Babylon's going to fall to Israel just like Satan fell to God. Now Isaiah wrote this book speaking to the future and he was talking about a time when the kingdom of Israel would stand up against the kingdom of Babylon and he's talking about the rise of the church in the future too. So we can look at this as a prophetic word to see how Satan and the battle against the church is going to go in the future. So let's start in verse 1. 
but the Lord will have mercy on the descendants of Jacob. He will choose Israel as his special people once again. He will bring them back to settle once again in their own land. And people from many nations, many different nations, will come and join them there and unite with the people of Israel. The nations of the world will help the Lord's people to return. And those who come to live in their land will serve them. Those who captured Israel them themselves will be captured, and Israel will rule over its enemies. In that wonderful day, the Lord gives his people rest from sorrow and fear, from slavery and chains. You will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say, the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your insolence is ended, for the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. You struck the people with endless blows of rage and held the nations in your angry grip with unrelenting tyranny. But finally, the earth is at rest and quiet. Now it can sing again. Even the trees of the forest, the cypress trees, and the cedars of Lebanon sing out with joyous song. Since you have been cut down, no one will come now and cut us down. In the place of the dead, there is excitement over your arrival. The spirits of the world leaders and mighty kings, long dead, stand up to see you. With one voice, they all cry out, Now you are as weak as we are. Your might and power are buried with you. The sound of the harp in your palace has ceased. Now maggots are your sheet and worms your blanket. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. So this is here how we see he's talking about Satan and his battle against God. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend into heaven and sit on a throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead down to the lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, Can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? The kings of the nations lie in stately glory, each in his own tomb, but you will be thrown out of your grave like a worthless branch, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will be dumped into a mass grave with those killed in battle. You will descend to the pit. You will not be given a proper burial, for you have destroyed your nation and slaughtered your people. The descendants of such an evil person will never again receive honor. Kill the man's children. Let them die because of their father's sins. They must not rise and conquer the earth, filling the world with their cities. So that's the outcome to the rulers of this world. This is the outcome for the false gods on this earth. They will be trampled underfoot. Even the kings that have died will look at them and say, Is this really the guy who destroyed the earth? That's what the world's going to think about Satan in the end. Is this really it? This was him? This is who thought he could stand against the god of gods? and the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. We serve a great God. Jeremiah 31 and verse 27 says, 
the Lord our God is the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? In the King James Version, it says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Nothing's too hard for this God. The God that we serve is the God who created the entire world. And today he still holds the kingdoms of this world in his hand. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. And if he was hungry, he wouldn't ask you. (laughs) Now let's flip to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. And we're going to read through chapter 2 verse 7. I also pray that you will understand this incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in a place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. Now he is far above any rule of authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So that's pretty powerful. That goes back to what we were talking about in Matthew and Luke, that Christ has been made head over all things. That's why he is God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords. Every authority is under him. And he has made the church his body. So we are made complete by Christ. And we fulfill all things that Christ would have done on earth. So let's continue in chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin. So it's important not to live in sin. Just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. That's really powerful that the God of gods and the Lord of lords is working through us to establish his kingdom here on earth. And I don't think our God is going to fail at this attempt. I think we're going to see a day real soon where Christians are going to rise up and take back dominion of this world. That's what this Bible has been prophesying through the whole book, is that God's kingdom on earth will reign as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. And we know this because he's coming again soon. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read about the second coming. 
This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last day scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? For before the time of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same world, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment, when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget one thing, dear friends. A day is a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. So there's the answer to the age-old question. How come God allows bad things to happen on earth, and how come he hasn't come back and stopped all this? And that's the answer. Because he's giving people time to repent. He is still the God of this world. He's the God of gods. And he is going to rule over this world. But he's not just going to burn it up with fire right now. Instead, he's dealing with people patiently, allowing them time to repent from their sins and to see that God truly is an amazing God, a pure and just God. So I don't care how much chaos the devil causes on this earth. Jesus is still the Lord of Lords and the God of God. He still has this world right in the palm of his hands. The government will be on his shoulders forever, according to the word of God. And if you serve him, you will have a blessed life. John 10 and 10 says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ came so that you can have a rich and satisfying life. So here's my plea to everyone listening to this. To make the God of gods your God today. To choose to serve him. Because there are false gods in this earth, and there are little g-gods. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords will reign victorious in the end over everything. 
that we've ever thought was a God on this earth. So one more scripture we're going to go to before we wrap this up is the book of Revelations. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. And he laid his hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. So here we have a vision of revelations of Christ in the future. And he still holds the keys to this world. He's never going to let go of his ownership of this world. Matter of fact, he'll destroy it to prove that it was his all along. And he'll create a new heaven and a new earth where everyone who chooses to believe in him will be able to live for an eternity in peace and righteousness filled with the glory of God. And I can't wait for that day. So I hope this Bible study has done you some good. And I hope it is highlighted who the God of gods really is. Yahweh, Jesus Christ wrapped in flesh. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of gods. So let's go to him in prayer right now. If you would please bow your head and close your eyes with me. Dear Lord Jesus, we worship you so much, God. We thank you for this time in your word, God, for enlightening our minds with revelations of who you really are, that we can honor you for being the great God that you are, the mighty one, the holy one of Israel, Yahweh, wrapped in flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and creator of all, who will reign victoriously forever. And that we get to worship in your kingdom for an eternity, God. We thank you for that. And we praise you today. We really want to magnify your greatness, Lord, here on earth, Lord. That you'll get the glory for everything that we do. And we worship and praise you and in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. Thank you so much for spending this time with me in this Bible study. And I can't wait to spend more with you next time. So until then, may God richly bless you.